So anyway, it's just a blessing to be here. My name's Kurt, and uh, I get to preach, and uh, Dave and I and uh, Jim and Kel have just been blessed to be a part of what the Lord is doing here at Neighborhood Bible Church. So um, I realize it's a little bit dangerous to ask this question right at the beginning on a Sunday morning at 11.15, but uh, I, I just want to ask you this. What is your favorite fast food restaurant? Okay? we just take a poll here. What's your favorite fast food restaurant? Right back there. McDonald's. Okay, good answer. All right. Burrito Factory. Jack in the Box. Carl's. In and Out. Any others? Huh? Carpo's. All right, I know Carpo's. Yeah, good one. Yes? Sonic Drive-In. Okay, good. Hey, uh, did you know that in America, 13 billion hamburgers are consumed in one year. If you put all those hamburgers in a straight line, they would circle the earth more than 32 times. Americans currently spend $134 billion each year on fast food. Uh, that's more than they spend on college education, computers, software, some of you in the software industry, I'm sorry to say, or new cars. A typical child, our kids, have all, most of them have left now, but a typical child sees 20,000 junk food ads in one year. And here's a stat I love. One out of five American toddlers eats French fries every day. I just got this book called Fast Food Nation. I got it at a garage sale, and it was really good, and I've been enjoying it, and I'm not sure that I'm going to eat fast food ever again. But as we looked in, as I started looking into John chapter 4, I came up with this title for this morning, and this may throw some of you off, but I call this morning's sermon Fast Food Jesus, question mark. Because last week, the story was all about water. It was about this streams of living water, this water flowing up and out and over as Jesus interacted with the woman at the well. And today the story changes to food. It's not about water anymore, but it's about food. And uh, the question that came to my mind, you've, you've heard the question, what would Jesus do? Or somebody said, where, what would Jesus drive? Now, the question I have today is, where would Jesus drive in if he were going to go to a fast food restaurant? And here's the answer. He did his fast food drive-in in Samaria, right? John chapter 4, we saw in that first part that it said he had to go to Samaria, now, last week, Dave said, why did he have to go to Samaria? He didn't have to go to Samaria. He could have gone around Samaria. Well, he stops in for a drive-in in Samaria. He stops in and pulls in, and I believe Dave is right. Dave said, it. I think it's because his disciples needed to learn a lesson. And I believe that's absolutely true, and it's a lesson for us as well. John chapter 4, verse 27 says, then, that's where we're going to start today, his disciples returned, returned from where? Well, earlier in chapter 4, Jesus was there, left at the well, and the disciples, says verse 8, went off into town to buy food. So they'd gone on a, on a, a food run, and Jesus stays there by the well. And it says they returned, and they were, oh, I'm doing the, the PowerPoint here, right? All right. There we go. Oh, shucks. All right. There we are. Fast food Jesus. All right. So it says the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. Now, why is this surprising? Now, Dave laid that out for us last week, that it's surprising because, A, a Jew would not talk to a Samaritan. 
right? Jews saw Samaritans as these half-breeds. Samaritans likewise didn't like Jews back. So it just didn't happen. In fact, the woman, when Jesus comes up, says, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, a Samaritan? Secondly, it's a woman. You wouldn't talk to a woman in, in common culture. It was just uh, uh, unusual for Jesus, a Jewish man, to come talk to this woman. So uh, they were surprised. But no one asked, I love this, what do you want? I would assume that's speaking to the woman. Or why are you talking to her? I would assume that's speaking to Jesus. You know, the disciples have been around the Lord long enough now to not just completely make idiots out of themselves. Most of the time they do. This time they don't. They just say, okay, let's just, I'm hungry. I don't want to talk. I just want to, let's just get down to it. So the woman leaves in verse 28, right? The woman takes off and they're left there with her. It's interesting. It says, so, in the New American Standard, so the woman left. These other guys come up. She goes, whew, this is not appropriate. And so she takes off, right? Verse 31. Meanwhile, right? So she takes off and leaves. Verse 31, we're going to pick it up with the disciples. His disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Now, I wonder why they said eat something. The first thing on their mind is, not who is this woman, what were you doing, what have you been doing the last, you know, 45 minutes, half an hour, we were gone. But it's just as they say, eat something. Now, I wonder if that was because we're hungry too, and we can't eat until you do, or doggone it, it's the middle of the day, we've tramped all the way into town, came all the way back, we're hot, we're tired, let's eat. I don't know. It doesn't matter. So they say, eat. And the Lord says, I already have food. Now the disciples at this point are saying, how could you have food? Did did somebody bring you a happy meal? I mean, did, did you make a run out and get some chicken McNuggets or something? I mean, how did you get food? And what he says is, I already have food. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, the disciples at this point start scratching their heads because, you know, they look around. They don't see any, you know, Happy Meal boxes. They don't see any Carl's Jr. wrappers. They say, how could you have food? This isn't the first time in John that the disciples and others have walked away from something Jesus said, scratching their head and going, I just don't get this. Remember John chapter 2, verse 17, where Jesus says, tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. <laughs> and the Pharisees and everybody around them go, uh, Jesus, uh, reality check here, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're not going to rebuild it like that in three days. But Jesus had another, another message in mind. Jesus had some other truth in mind, didn't he? He was talking about his body. John chapter 3, remember Nicodemus comes at night. And again, one of those just completely outside of the box comments. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. (laughs) Nicodemus and all his disciples say, what are you talking about? How does that, that, come on, that doesn't work. But he's talking about a spiritual reality that uses a metaphor, a word picture, something to communicate a truth in a new and fresh way. It has to do with being born of the Spirit. Same principle here. My food. The disciples are going, you got food? Where did it come from? I don't see anything. No, he says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and finish His work. Wait, now, are you confused? They were. 
In fact, John chapter 6, there's going to be even more confusion because Jesus is going to say, I'm bread. I'm the bread of life. So get used to this in the book of John, these ideas of, of kind of clashing paradigms, because what Jesus is trying to do is get us to think in a broader level, in a deeper way. How can work be food? How can be doing God's will be food? Let's think about food for a minute this morning. How many of you had breakfast? Okay, most of you had breakfast, right? Unless you're uh, getting ready and fasting or for something. You, if you didn't have breakfast today, did you eat yesterday? Yeah. You eat on a regular basis, don't you? Food is required for life. Not, not only is food required for life, but some of you, anybody have a um, subscription to Bon Appetit? No. Okay. Any of you watch any cooking shows? Yeah. Those drive me crazy. What is the appeal of sitting around and watching somebody else cook food that you can't smell, that you can't taste, you can't eat, right? But there's an appeal there. Why? Because food is satisfying. You eat food and, and you're hungry and you think about it and you're like, wow. And some of you, I mean, your stomachs are going right now. You're thinking about that last, you know, whatever, Iron Chef that you watched. And you're just, whoa, man, can't wait for some of that, right? Well, are you getting the picture now? Jesus says, there's something going on here that just makes you want more. Food, you get a little taste, appetizers, right? you want more. And after you eat that food, you are satisfied. I've, uh, I've got four kids. And uh, just that, that hour between four o'clock and dinner time in our house is sometimes a little tense. Why? Because energy level is low, Right? we tend to get kind of cranky or whatever. I mean, they tend to get kind of cranky or whatever, right? And they come in, they drag to the dinner table, and then they eat. And, and it's just amazing to watch that, that blood sugar level go up. Have you noticed this with yourself or with your kids? You get food and you know, all of a sudden, my kids start, they eat, and, and you can just watch like the meter go up, right? And by the end of dinner time, we have a racetrack in our house, and the kids do laps around the racetrack, talking the whole time. Why? Because food energizes you. It gives you what you need. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, I've just been talking to this woman for the last half an hour about spiritual things, about her life, and now I'm energized. I'm full. I'm satisfied. I've got what I need to keep going. I don't care how good the food is that you brought. I don't even care if it's in and out. It's not as good, sorry Ben, it's not as good as doing God's will. When you give yourself to God's favorite work, He fills you up. He gives you energy. He mobilizes, He encourages you, He satisfies you with His work. According to the Wall Street Journal, there's a man who eats 12,000 calories a day. This is what he has for breakfast. Three fried egg sandwiches loaded with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise. Two cups of coffee, one five-egg omelet, one bowl of grits, three slices of French toast dipped in powdered sugar, and three chocolate chip pancakes. That's not the menu he chooses from. That's what he eats. Lunch is one pound of enriched pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayo and white bread, energy drinks packing a thousand calories. Dinner, one pound of pasta, a pound of pasta, 
an entire pizza, more energy drinks, total 12,000 calories per day. Now, what do you think this guy looks like? That's what he looks like. Now, my question to you is this. How can this guy look like this and eat that kind of food? I hope he stopped eating like that after the Olympics, you know. The reason is because he works out five hours a day, six days a week. The reason is he can eat like that is because he's exercising and expending energy. The thing I love about this picture is this guy. <laughs> He's like, why can't my arms look like that? You know, I only eat 2,000 calories a day, you know, or <laughs> whatever. What would happen to somebody who ate like that all the time and didn't exercise is they'd get fat. They'd become overweight. They'd become stuffed, but no place to go with that. I wonder sometimes if we as Christians, we have so much to take in. And we wonder sometimes, well, how come I can't take any more in? The question is not how much are you taking in, but how much are you giving out? Jesus said, I've got, I'm full right now because I've been given out for the last hour. It's been awesome. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you hungry? Are you hungry to know God? Are you hungry to meet with God this morning because you need Him? Because you've been giving out and you've been pouring out and you've been expending and you come today hungry? Are you at a place where you say, God, if you don't come through, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the answer to the question my neighbor is asking. I've, I've tried to be obedient in this area and I failed again. God, I really need you today. God, I've stepped out of my comfort zone to do something, to, to go to Mexico. I've given in a way that's new and fresh for me, and so now these orphans can have... Are you doing that? Let me tell you, if you're not doing that, I doubt if you're going to be hungry. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, said in all things... At all times, having all that you need, you will abound in leisure time activities. You will abound in recreation. You will abound in the good life. You will abound in creature comforts of every kind and conspicuous consumerism and all the things that we call the American good life. He says you will abound in every good work. That is what God has put us on this earth for. That's what God has given us, the gifts of the Spirit. That's what God has given us Neighborhood Bible Church for. Is it so we can come and be fed, so we can go out and we can give. We can do His will and we can do His work. I am afraid that we have too many fast food Christians today. How does that work? Oh, we get up, we nibble a little on the Word, we sip a little J. Vernon McGee on the way, we snack on some Christian music at work time. On Sunday, I'll come and get a good meal, cut up a nice little bite, served on a nice plate, and that will be how much I need. 
And there's not an exporting, a pouring out of, of what God wants. Here's my point. Doing God's will and God's work satisfies and energizes your soul. Being about what God is about. Being about where God's heart is. The disciples, I mean, God bless them. Let's go get some food. Okay, great. I wonder if just one of them thought, I could stay and talk with Jesus with this woman at the well. Uh, they saw her. They had to have seen her. But they, they didn't. God's plan is we'd be doing His work. That's what we're created for. Dave talked about the water of God's grace. And grace like water flows to this lowest point and meets this woman in her place of need. But when water stops flowing, what happens to it? It gets stagnant. It gets stale. It, gets, it, 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 it goes bad. Water is meant to flow. You didn't see those pictures behind the words today of some stagnant, mosquito-infested you know, pond. No, you saw rushing, flowing, moving river. That means it needs to keep going into you and then out of you and on to the next person. And for me as well. There's a lady a couple of months ago who died of water poisoning. Did you hear about this? She uh, was in a radio, uh, a radio con uh, contest of some kind to see who could drink the most water. And she, mother of three, and she died. Because she took in, but it didn't go anywhere. Water, like grace, flows to the lowest point. And water, and grace like water, goes stagnant if it doesn't have an outlet. All right, let's look at the next Part now. Jesus goes on to illustrate further. Do you not say, verse 35, four months and then comes the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. What is, this that, is it that keeps us from allowing that grace to flow through us, out of us, on from us? Well, in the plant kingdom, there is a cycle, right? I'm, I'm no farmer, I can tell you that. We do have a little, a little tomato garden in our backyard. And there's a cycle, right? You cultivate, you, 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 uh, you plant, you fertilize, you weed, you wait. Right? You water some more, you weed some more, you wait. Then eventually you harvest. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God isn't like that. The kingdom of God isn't one of these things where we sit and we wait. There's an urgency. There's an immediacy. There's a, an element where Jesus is saying, all around you, there are people that are ripe. Look what He says. They are white, the New American Standard says, ready to be picked. Now, do you know who those people are? No. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, talking about people who were elect, said this, if I knew who all the elect people, if all, everybody who was elect just had a big X on their back, I just go around lifting shirts and find out who they are. <laughs> and then I'd share the gospel with them. But we don't know that. Every person potentially is somebody God is working through. So I share with anybody and everybody I can. Dave talked last week about bumping into people. About intentionally bumping into people. I was having lunch down the street here at Ohana Grill. And a uh, nice young man was serving me. And... Uh, uh, this is something I do fairly often, is I asked him about his tattoos. You know, that's a great inroad to somebody's life. You, you don't 
put something into your body without it meaning something. At least most people don't. And so I said to him, hey, what are your tattoos saying, man? He said, without thinking. I'm like, wow, there's a life motto. (laughs) So I said, what does it mean? He said this. He told me this whole story about one of his uncles had taken a bullet for a family member over in Hawaii in a, in a, in a, in a fight of some kind. And that he would lay down his life without thinking for a family member. You know what Ohana means? Have you watched any Disney movies? Yeah. Ohana means family. So without thinking is not something that he just, one day when he was, you know, out of his mind, had stu- This is something important to him. I'm like, wow, that is so cool. Now, I go back there again, I can ask him about that. What's important to you in your life? There's an urgency. There are people all around us. I don't know if this guy's going to become a believer, but now I've got an opportunity. You have people all around you that you can talk to, that you can look at. We've got to, Jesus says, lift up your eyes. It's not just about making sure lunchtime happens, right? It's about meeting needs of people around us. Don't wait. Get after it. Plant. Harvest. Do it. Do it now. Talk to people. Here's my application point. God's will and work satisfies and energizes the soul, but doing God's will and work requires, I like this phrase that Dave used, respectful urgency. We're not forcing our way on people. We're giving people the opportunity to respond to the truth of God. God's the one who does the work. Paul would later say, one man plants, one man waters, but it's God that gives the growth, right? So this metaphor of, of, uh, of harvesting and planting. All around the world, God is at work. And uh, let me just take you on a little world tour right now. You think about the United States of America, you think about the churches we drive through and we looked at, but the world is really broken up into, again, different ways of looking at things, but one of the ways is what exposure have they had to the gospel? So if we think about the world, we think about one of those groups of people are called unreached. That is, cultures who have no witness in their own language, none at all, don't have Bibles, uh, may have never heard the name of Jesus, This is about 32% of the world's population. They've never heard the gospel. They've never heard of Christian. And they may never have heard the name of Jesus. How many people in the world? That's about 2 billion people. Roughly one-third of the world's population. Would these people receive Christ given the opportunity? I was in India in February. I saw villages where people had come to Christ in the last month. A household jam-packed full of people. First time the name of Jesus had ever been in that village. It was brought in by one of the members of their community and spread through like wildfire. First time to hear the name of Christ. There's another category. Oh, 1040 window. Most of the people in that category are found in what's called the 1040 window. That is, 97% of the people, these unreached, are in this this area. North uh, Saharan uh, Africa, um, all the way through the Middle East, through Southeast Asia, and on all the way through to Japan. Uh, Indonesia is also included in that. 82% of the poorest of the poor as well. And again, about 2.7 uh, 2. billion people. These include tribals, 
uh, people with animistic backgrounds, Hindus, um, unreached people, Muslims, and Buddhists. If you just want to remember how to pray for the unreached peoples of the world, just hold up your thumb. Tribals, Hindus, unreached, uh, unreligious people, Muslims, and Buddhists. You've got the five major groups of people who've never heard the name of Christ. The, the, the fields are white unto harvest. These are hard places where the gospel, some of them, the gospel is just barely in there in those places, but God is making inroads. Then we come to the next area called reached. Not Christians, but there is an evangelizing church with Christians who are witnessing. So a reached country like the United States of America, we're primarily reached. Uh, there are pockets of people who've never heard of Christ, but uh, this is 36% of the world who are within reach of the gospel if only somebody would tell them that the gospel is available. This is your neighbors. This is people who live uh, uh, in Western Europe. Uh, much of South America uh, is in this category as well. Again, 2.1 billion people. Third are cultural Christians. Folks who call themselves Christians, either from a religious background of some kind, they attend, they, but they may never attend church, pray, read their Bible, or share their faith. About 20% of the world's population are cultural Christians. And that's about 1.2 billion people. And then what's left are believers. People who attend church regularly share their faith. And this is about 12% of the world's population. About 700 million people. So that means those of us who are here, those of us who are asking God to work and to use us in our lives, that's we're the ones. There are opportunities all around us. Everywhere we go, there are opportunities. So uh, Jesus says then, uh, verse 36, read on with me. He, he's, he keeps drawing this story on out. Yes, we've got to be about doing God's work and His will. Yes, we have opportunities all around us. And then he illustrates even further, verse 36. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crops for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the one saying, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. For I have sent you to reap that which you have not worked for. And others have done the hard work that you may reap the benefits of their labor. Jesus is talking about a partnership. Jesus is talking not about one person going out and doing it all by themselves, but each person playing their part in world evangelization, in being about His work and His will. We have already said that doing God's work and His will satisfies and energizes your soul. We've said it requires respectful urgency. The third thing that God's work and His will require are missional teamwork. Now, what is the word missional? Uh, I think I may have uh, shared that word with some of you before, but it's basically a word that says it takes the, the word mission from mission statement, purpose for existing, reason why we're there, and missionary, and puts them together. It's uh, the idea that the Great Commission is an assignment for every person to every person in the world. Now, some of you are saying, oh, hey, this is turning out to be a missions uh, talk. It's not missions. It's missional. And it's different. Missions we think about, well, that's somebody out there in Africa. right? That's somebody out there in the Middle East. No, but missional has to do with all of us playing the part that we're doing. Again, there's 6 billion people in the world. The majority of them 
don't know Christ. So at NBC, we talk about being glocal. That is global and local. I always want to say loco, but it's not. It's global and local, all right? And so we have ministries that are focused out there on the world. We've got a team of people, the Go Team, and it's about global outreach. But we've got ministries and people and heart, and we exist here in our local area to reach the world, reach this world for Christ. Again, the unreached, they've never heard. The reached, maybe they've heard, but they've never seen Jesus in a compelling way. So each person doing their part. Um, let me just tell you a quick story about a guy named Vinny. Vinny is born in Madras, India. He uh, came to the United States. He's a Hindu. Somehow he ends up coming to church and he starts hearing about Christianity. He's got a neighbor who's a, a missionary and he asks her out and she won't go out with him because he's not a believer. And he says, doggone it, what's up with that? So he starts coming to church. I don't know if just to impress her or what. But then he runs into a guy named Josue who's from Mexico who works for Apple. And Josue starts sharing the gospel with him and doing stuff around, uh, you know, socially. Well, then he comes to church and he meets a guy named Chris and another guy named Vach, and they're Indian. And they start talking about what it means to be an Indian believer. Then I get to go out to lunch with them and I talk to them. You see how many touches each person doing their part? And then on Thanksgiving a year ago when nobody's around, just him and the Lord and the Word, he gives his heart to Jesus. It's not about one person doing it. It's about a bunch of people each playing their part. So here's the question. What's your part? What's your investment? What's your food that you hunger for and long for that's got your personality and your gift mix and your, and your place in life and place in the world? Are you missional? Not missions-minded, Missions-minded will flow out of being missional because for some of you, that ministry, that touch is going to mean going to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, the Gospel goes like this, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Not one or the other. Not one then the other. But all of them at the same time. So what's your part? To what extent is Neighborhood Bible Church a sent community? We gather here, yes, but we gather here to get strong, to get equipped, and then to go. I love Bethel Church uh, on Winchester has this sign as you go out of their parking lot. It says, you are now entering the mission field. And that's the right mentality. As soon as you go outside, as soon as you, you know, step outside, you are sent ones. Are you part of the missional team? All right. Now, don't forget the rest of the story. Come back to John. Don't forget the rest of the story. Verse 39. Now, she has gone out. She left them, right? And in a great illustration of what Jesus is talking about, she has left them, and it says uh, she goes and talks to who? It says she goes and talks to the men in the city. I love that. None of the women will talk to her. I mean, Dave painted a picture of, of what kind of a woman this was, right? So the women won't talk to her. The men will talk to her. And she tells the men, hey, you've got to go out and see this guy who has told me everything I've ever done. You think any of the men started getting nervous? Oh, yeah. And so the city goes out, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans from the town believed on him. They came out to see him. 
And he stayed with them and he interacted with them and he talked to them. And verse 42 says this. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. Now we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This woman who didn't know anything about Jesus except a half hour conversation has now brought a tired village. And many people believed. In fact, she says at one point in time, she goes out and she says, could this be the Christ? NIV says. NASB puts it even more dubiously. This, this couldn't be the Christ, could it? So what did she know? She knew a little bit more than the blind man who said, I once was blind, but now I see. That's all I know. How much do you need to know in order to be about the work and the will of the Father? Not much. This shows. What happens when people start doing that? Well, how many of you remember 1974? Anybody here remember 1974? Okay, a few of us. In 1974, half of the world's population was unreached. Half. Today, because of what is happening, that number has dropped to a third. Now, that's 35 years. The advance of the gospel has started this, 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 this meteoric rise all over the world now. You know, there are more missionaries coming from Asia into the world than from the United States. We're no longer the, 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 primary, the premier sending agency place of the world. It's happening all around us. People are coming to Christ in droves in Africa, in Asia, in South America. Oh, it's exciting. So Jesus put it this way. He said, when he looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them because they're people. He looked at the woman. He could see her brokenness and his heart broke for her. And he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. I already heard that. But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his harvest field. I don't think what he had in mind there was professional workers, pastors, missionaries. I think what he had in mind was his people, missional disciples who have their food to do God's will. Let me leave you with this last quote. This guy was a Nobel Peace Prize winner in the middle 40s, John R. Mott, an amazing guy. And he said this, each individual and community needs something to live for apart from itself and its own work. A global missional vision enlarges one's view of the world, the church, and the gospel. It's not just about hanging on to that water for myself. Jesus, even in His picture early in chapter 4, said it's a spring overflowing, not to be captured and held on to. So the question I have for us today is, do we have this vision of missional living? Of, of doing the will and work of the Father as you're in the classroom as a student, as you're mowing the lawn on your street, as you are thinking about writing out your checks and your calendar and all those resources that you have at your disposal. Are we missional in what we do? Neighborhood Bible Church is committed to being missional, local outreach, local and global. So what, what is your part in that? What is, is my part? 
that's the question we need to ask. The so what, then, is to answer the question for you. Here, here's, what, here's my food. Here's what energizes me. Here's where God is directing me. If you don't know the answer to that question, then you need to come and talk to one of us and say, I don't know what my place is, but I'm ready to start trying to find out. And uh, believe me, we'll, we'll put you to work. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for teaching us about yourself, for giving us a picture. Even in this woman whose life is changed, who doesn't know very much, but she knows enough to be able to go and tell others about how good you are and uh, how powerful you are and how loving you are. Pray, God, that you do the same for us in the uh, bowling alleys and in the classrooms and in the workplaces and in the grocery store that you, God, would be using us. Um, And Lord, then as you feed us, that we would be strong, mighty to do your will. In Christ's name we pray.